Welcome to the Heroes of Reality Podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Do you want to know how virtual therapeutics will revolutionize medicine? Well, on today's podcast, I have Brandon Spiegel. He is the Director of Health Services and Research for Cedar Sinai and Director of the Cedar Sinai Master's Degree Program in Health Delivery Science. He directs the Cedar Sinai Center for Outcomes Research and Education, CS Core, a multidisciplinary team that investigates how digital health technologies, including wearable biosensors, smartphone applications, virtual reality, and social media can strengthen the patient-doctor bond, improve outcomes, and save money. He is also the author of VRX, How Virtual Therapeutics Will Revolutionize Medicines. Without any further delay, I'd like to welcome Dr. Spiegel. Hey. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I am so stoked to have you on here, man. Um, I, was, I was just telling you before this, um, it's going through your uh, your book again. And, you know, there's uh, so many people in my studies of uncovering and discovering modern day heroes that are helping kind of transform who they are and the people around them. I came across uh, so many of these people inside your book that you've put together. And I was just blown away at your ability to take all of these different uh, experts in the space and put it in a comprehensive book that you can explain in layman's turn, not, you know, non doctories, uh, to make it uh, comprehensive and uh, digestible for the, the, the average folks. So mm-hmm. uh, I'd love to say thank you so much for making that. And it's a pleasure to have you on. Well, thanks so much. I'm glad it was useful. Yeah. Um, I'd love to start off just a little bit. If you could kind of just give everybody just a bit of the background that kind of led you up to, to really creating this VRX book. Mm-hmm. All right. So I've been working in virtual reality now for about seven years, which mm-hmm. is uh, not as long as some people. Some people have been working in VR for decades. And, you know, when most people think about VR, they think about a gaming platform, you know, to entertain people. Think about, you know, teenagers playing first person shooter games, that kind of thing. But long before it was a platform for gaming and entertainment, you know, VR was being used in the Department of Defense to train fighter pilots. It was being used in elite psychology laboratories all around the world to understand how it can affect the human mind uh, for good or for bad. Mm-hmm. And so I became interested in its use for healthcare. And um, the book, VRX, is really uh, a, my way of telling the stories of what we now call MXR, which is medical extended reality. But it's really a uh, kind of a, a journey into the Uh, boundaries of human knowledge about the brain, about Mm -hmm. neuroscience, and about what happens when we combine technology and psychology, uh, even philosophy and clinical medicine, uh, mix in some neuroscience, um, and through the lens of virtual reality, almost literally uh, explore what it means when we talk about mind-body medicine. So it's really a lot of things all at once. Yeah, I mean, you're trying to encompass the the entire human condition all in one go, you know, from the physical to the mental to the social to the emotional, all that fun stuff. And so it's a lot to digest and process. Can you talk to me just a little bit about your process of how you actually created the book? Did you gather all the information? Did you throw it on a whiteboard? How, what Can you talk to me just a little bit how you actually created the book? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I've written, you know, hundreds of articles for doctors. Uh, so I'm comfortable, you know, writing in English, but writing in, you know, outside of, you know, writing for the lay public uh, is a different kind of challenge. And so 
one of the challenges is just trying to translate all the science into a digestible um, kind of user-friendly um, you know, uh, resource, but also trying to thread together the thousands of stories, both patient level stories that we've experienced, but also the now 10,000 research studies around medical extended reality. And how do I kind of compress those all into one book? So mm -hmm. it took me you know, a good two years of work, uh, both reading every study I could find at the time on VR and healthcare, uh, categorizing them into kind of major opportunities, mechanisms of action, so on. And then trying to walk through uh, from my own viewpoint, uh, from stories I experienced, myself using VR and patients using VR, sort of create a narrative um, to work us through where we are now and what the future looks like as medicine meets the metaverse. Mm. Medicine meets the metaverse. Uh, I mean, that that is something that we're stepping into right now because right now we are starting to become aware of this VR is becoming much more adopted now than ever before. I mean, we have what 10 million Quest headsets went out last year. And so this is getting adopted at an even faster rate. But I mean, even recently, I still heard, you know, uh, from a, a, a local hospital, they're like, hey, uh, is this effective? Do doctors even use it? Do they even use it in the facilities? How do we even know? Is this a evidence-based therapy? Can you, can you, you know, for them just uh, speak a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, absolutely evidence-based. Uh, in fact, at this point, we have more evidence for uh, VR for pain management in particular than we have for some drugs. I mean, literally we have not just some randomized controlled trials, we have meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials and even multiple meta-analyses. Uh, so at this point, it's really not a scientific issue or debate anymore about whether or not VR can help with pain in particular. Now, there are many, many other uses of VR beyond pain, but just focusing on that for a moment, um, it's really not a scientific issue anymore. Really, the issue is how do we logistically deliver virtual reality? into everyday clinical practice? How do we train clinicians? Who should be administering the VR? Uh, should they get reimbursed? Should insurance be paying for this? These are the real big hurdles at this point. Not so much the science, because we have FDA cleared therapies now, in fact. So yeah, uh, it's not a scientific issue, although there's still a lot of science to work out for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you're speaking to one of the, the front runners of saying this mitigates pain. I was actually talking uh, to a um, friend of mine who just announced that she was pregnant on Mother's Day and mm -hmm. they're trying to figure out if they wanted to do the pregnancy. And I said, well, um, you, from what I understand, can actually uh, wear it on your head while you're giving childbirth to actually right. mitigate some of that childbirth. And uh, she was a little skeptical, to say the least, because I think we have a, a direct implication that if I can just get a shot, it would be more like, how could possibly VR could have an impact? Uh, if I just put a thing on my head, how does that stop pain? And that right. I think is one of the, the big, especially when you're going into something that's difficult as childbirth. Yeah. Now, of course, here we are two men uh, talking about childbirth. But that said, um, We've actually conducted a randomized control trial here at Cedar sinai in partnership uh, with uh, Melissa Wong and Kim Gregory, who are two obstetricians here at Cedar sinai who took a real interest in virtual reality. And so we did a randomized control trial um, that uh, involved use of VR. It was a form of biofeedback-enabled VR, where the breathing in and out 
was tracked by the microphone and the headset. And then there was sort of this metaphorical narrative that people, uh, that, that these women would see during labor, uh, where they're sort of bringing uh, a tree to life. As they breathe in and out, this tree expands and contracts with their breathing. And sort of with each expansion, you see more leaves growing on the tree. And it starts to become this sort of fantastical, uh, beautiful, almost um, you know, iridescent, a glowing object over the course of the several hours of labor. And wow. so uh, there is also a voiceover and, and some sort of meditative scripts uh, designed specifically by and for women going through labor. And as I say, I, I haven't been through labor, so I don't know. But when we measured the pain scores, we saw lower perceived pain in the group that received the VR. Now, this has been reproduced at the University of Michigan, where another study found uh, the exact same thing. Um, yet another study, I think from the Middle East, as I recall, uh, might have been Iran, I can't remember exactly, looked at episiotomy, which um, and episiotomy repair, which sometimes is required after a particularly traumatic uh, delivery. And once again, virtual reality helped reduce the perceived pain from the repair of the, the episiotomy after, after labor and delivery. So we have quite a few studies now. And in mm -hmm. fact, Melissa Wong gave a wonderful talk on this topic at our recent virtual medicine conference. Um, and so you can go on our website, virtualmedicine.org to learn more about that. Uh, and yeah, I talk about that in the book quite a bit. Yeah, that's, it's, and you're right, coming from a male, they're like, oh, do you really know? I'm like, no, I don't. I really you're don't right. know. But the right. science says. <laughs> that's fair, right. Yeah. And one thing you're talking about this, having a clear indicator, right? So we know pain mitigation, you can show that, but you're also talking about, there's also this messy other piece of this uh, psychosocial, emotional aspect of using virtuality to help people, let's say, believe that they're heroes of their own story or be able to transform who they are or shift their identities, their beliefs, their patterns, their behaviors, their habits, whatever it is, to actually mm -hmm. be able to change that. And so that's a little bit more messy when you when you can't necessarily, you know, look at it on uh, metrics because you're getting the areas of psychology, which is you said in the book, primarily doctors are more hesitant to get into that because they feel like there's a, di a disconnection between the the body and the mind. And so can you speak a little bit to the uh, coming up with the data for the messy pieces that is the psychosocial emotional aspect? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, messy is an interesting word. Um, I think sometimes what we mean by messy is we don't have, let's say, an objective parameter, you know, something mm -hmm. like um, you know, blood pressure, heart rate, or some kind of biomarker. Instead, we're relying on what some people call psychomarkers, which is basically, how are you feeling? Uh, but that's very objective, too. So we are able to definitely get objective outcomes about how people are feeling, anxiety, depression, even hallucinations and people with schizophrenia. But I think the, the sort of messy part is disentangling what we call biopsychosocial medicine. And mm -hmm. so I talk, I sort of trace the history of this in the book a little bit, that back in, uh, I think it was 1948, when the World Health Organization charter was founded, um, the World Health Organization um, defined health as not just physical well-being, but a complete state of physical, emotional, and social well-being. And so the WHO defined health with this tripartite model of three components of pain, uh, not a pain, of well-being. So yeah, I mean, there's the physical experience, but there's also psychosocial. Mm. And that was quite revolutionary at the time. Um, and so the interesting thing though, is over the course of the mid-century and then into the later part of the century, 
there were such massive advances in biochemistry, pharmacology, genetics, uh, and multiple other fields like immunology that we started to lose track of the psychosocial because there was this massive new avalanche of information and knowledge about just the biological um, components of health. And so psychology and psychiatry started to become kind of pushed aside, like not a real component of medicine. Psychiatrists took care of the brain and the mind, and then like real doctors took care of the rest of the body. Well, it turns out that was, a, that was dead wrong. And I kind of traced this story because we now know that the brain and the body are completely and totally inexorable. They're connected. They're one and the same. In fact, the, your body, your muscles, your tendons, your nervous system, your immune system, all of it is kind of like the extra cranial part of your brain. It's the part of your brain that's not protected in the hard skull, but it's all connected. So we now have come to sort of full circle. And now, and I won't belabor this history too much longer, but in the late 1970s, this idea of a biopsychosocial model came out. That's not just a biomedical model. We have to integrate social sciences and psychological sciences into a holistic view of human health. And so that has really affected the subsequent decades. And I, I kind of trace that story a bit. And this is where VR shows up because now we recognize both neuroscientifically, psychologically, that we have to think broadly about human health. And this isn't to say pharmacotherapy that I'm trained in as a Western doctor is not worthwhile. Of course it is, but we can augment many of our treatments through behavioral therapies. And VR just gives us a very efficient way to deliver a wide variety of behavioral uh, interventions that can help augment the care that we provide. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that makes a ton of sense. So, I mean, just to let you know on, on my side of things, I, I've also produced virtual reality multiplayer experiences. I've facilitated uh, workforce readiness programs where I help them. I've done it in areas where the people are incarcerated and helping kids to see that here's some story using this VR therapy. And uh, the way that I kind of look at this is you we live in three realities and in your book you do a great example of that the og virtual reality is imagination which i love i absolutely love that and i think that we live in three realities right we live in the external reality um which i learned a lot from Giuseppe Rivera on the podcast right we live in we live in our own internal reality and then we live in the social reality that we co-create together and so using that it really using coaching inside a virtual space, you're leveraging those two realities to then affect the inner reality of the patient or the client or the person to affect change. Is there another dynamic piece to that? Or what are, what, are there other pieces of that that I'm missing in that overall theory or concept? Yeah, I think there's a few ways to take that. I think that's a nice framework. Uh, the way I kind of talk about it in the book is um, just taking a neuroscience approach for a moment, there's extraception and there's interoception. So what that means is extraception is our ability to sense the world around us, to mm. see it, to hear it, to feel it, all the typical senses, to taste it, so on. Uh, and that's how we often think about the world as we experience it. These sensations come in from the outer world. Uh, and then they're integrated in our body and in our mind. And we actually process information with, with brain and body together. But there's also interoception. Interoception is the inner body. We constantly are tracking what's happening inside of our body. We can feel our heart beating or our digestion. or And typically, you don't really pay a lot of attention to that unless something goes wrong. 
Mm. And for some people, the problem that they experience is really not so much extraception, but interoception. Uh, they have, for example, uh, too little connection with their body or mm. too much connection with their body. And I kind of break those two up in the book and talk about how virtual reality can actually help with interoception and extraception. But really what you're bringing up then is the social component, which is virtual reality also can modify how we interact with one another, not just with the world around us um, or within the world within us, but with one another. And social VR opens up that box. But what complicates all of this is this idea of, you know, where does virtual and real, uh, where do they come together? And what does that really mean? Um, because as you kind of think about it, you know, virtual reality in a way is is genuine reality. It, the metaphysics are different. So, mm -hmm. for example, we're dealing with bits and bytes when I look at a digital forest, as opposed to atoms and quarks and electrons and whatever makes up an actual biological forest. Mm -hmm. But they both can affect my physiology. They both can affect my cognitions, my emotions. So at what point is one thing become real or not real? That's a really interesting philosophical discussion that people like uh, Chalmers at NYU have written books about. Mm. Well, that's, yeah, in talking about, because if it, whatever, it doesn't matter what actually happens, it's your interpretation and the story that you can tell yourself along the way that actually shapes that reality. Because you talk about how the Buddha says, you know, pain is inevitable, but, but suffering is really a choice that we really extend onto ourselves. And if you if you look at people like um, uh, the gentleman who created the transformational technologies, and he talked about enlightenment. Enlightenment, a lot of you look at the patterns of enlightenment, it's one of the key signs of that is you lose the narrative mind. That thing that tells you that you have these stories inside of yourselves, because that is the thing that creates a lot of suffering because you have that ruminating mind. Right. And the people in line are pretty much in a blissful state moving through that. It's just very difficult or can be difficult. We feel like we have a, uh, our ego is attached to that narrative mind. And so, really creating that detachment from that and separating that is what I think a lot of people create in that piece. But do you feel like it's really, you need to have that narrative mind in order to function in society? Or can you operate from a place without having that internal narrative mind to able to able to get things done? Right? Yeah. So we all have most all of us, not all of us, but mm. most all of us have a sense of self, meaning I can tell that I'm not you. Right? I don't think I'm you. Um, mm -hmm. And I have a very strong belief that I'm not you. Mm. Now, that could be violated if I took a psychedelic. You know, if I took psilocybin or LSD, I might actually just lose my sense of self entirely and lose this and, and enter this non-dual consciousness where I literally mm -hmm. believe I'm this computer I'm standing in front of or this room that I, I just become, I lose myself, literally lose myself. And so, you know, neurologically, the sense of self is determined um, by a network in the brain that, you know, we call the default mode network or the DMN. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that we do need a sense of self. It's pretty important to get through the world. <laughs> it's important to strategize and to protect oneself and to make decisions that are wise for one's well-being. But obviously the ruminating mind is sort of the extreme where there's this rigid sense of self where the mind is creating stories, um, often neurotically, uh, predicting a catastrophic future and constantly protecting against that. 
And that can be very well adapted in certain situations, but can lead to anxiety and depression if it's extreme. On the other side, if you have too little sense of self, um, then all sorts of bad things can happen. First of all, you can be taken advantage of and that sort of thing. But at the other extreme, something like schizophrenia, uh, where you might hear voices in your head that you literally believe are not you. So you've lost to some degree a sense of self in that condition. Mm -hmm. And so I talk a lot about this in the book because virtual reality has a role to play on both sides of that spectrum. It mm -hmm. can help strengthen the sense of self in people with schizophrenia, for example, and it can help loosen the sense of self in people with neuroticism, anxiety, uh, or depression. And mm -hmm. so there is a Goldilocks zone in the middle. Um, yeah. Find that happens. And as someone who uh, has imbibed in plant medicine, I can confirm that you do lose a sense of self and you feel like it's interesting because as you go up to that, you feel that that greater sense of unity being one with everything. And when you feel that sense of unity, you have that uh, both terror of letting go of the ego, but also that that calmness of being, you know, everything's OK because I am one with everything as right. as Zen Buddha matrixy as that sounds. Sure. Right. Right. Uh, and, but if you look at that, though, and when I when I find and by the way, it's Dr. Jeffrey Martin, who was thinking about that, who wrote the book Finders and talks about mapping out the enlightenment paths along the way of losing the narrative mind and what else that means. I um, just remember that. So I want to get back to that. But looking at that, I think you're talking about how inside the book, you're talking about these seemingly psychedelic experiences that you can have inside of VR. One of the things that I had to take a pause and I had to read through it and I go through it back. I was like, wait, wait, wait. This is fascinating. One of the things that you brought up was when you had an, uh, a situation where your consciousness was essentially ripped from your body inside of VR, where you felt yourself have that 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 um, detachment from it um, through a combination of haptic and visual experience stacking on top of the um, phantom arm syndrome and, and going, can you just... Uh, talk a little bit about that because I found that be so fascinating, and I think that'd be it's. Uh, I've never actually heard of something actually creating that outside of a um, uh, 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 psychedelic or plant medicine experience. Yeah. So um, first off, I do see there's a question about whether it can help deal with dementia. Maybe we'll get to that because um, that's a really good question. They're oh. popping up on the screen where I am. So, <laughs> uh, but before we get to that. Yeah, so this example, I actually start the book with this, at least mm. the first chapter after the intro. And I was in the laboratory of uh, Mel Slater, who's a professor uh, of virtual reality, um, of virtual environments at the University of Barcelona. He's been studying this for, for years. And so when I visited his lab, they put me in this room. It was kind of a nondescript room. You have to just imagine there's like four black walls. It's uh, not particularly... Uh, peeling and you sit down and I was, uh, they asked me to kick my feet out onto a coffee table that was out in front of me. So I did that. Yeah. And they then put a headset on my uh, face and all of a sudden that dark, dank room turned into this beautiful living space, like a living room. And I saw my legs right out in front of me um, on that coffee table. But of course they were digital legs. And so they asked me, start to move your legs. And I moved my legs in real reality. And then these virtual legs moved in a one-to-one -one synchrony in virtual reality. So uh, they had uh, put me in this body. I had what he called full body virtual embodiment. Uh, and how they did that is we don't have a lot of time to get into the details, but this is what I experienced. 
Mm. And so I'm in this digital body and I'm thinking, wow, this is so realistic, right? But somewhere in this room, there's a computer running thousands of lines of code convincing my brain that I am occupying this digital body. But my brain, you know, just assumed that that was actually my body because we've never evolved to live in multiple realities at once. We accept the reality that we're given. Even intellectually, I understood that I wasn't uh, actually in a living room. I, I knew I was in a laboratory in Barcelona. My brain didn't really care. It's like, yeah, you're in a living room. So with all of that, what happened next is really hard to put into words. And I tried to in the book, but what happened next is he separated me from me. I all of a sudden, my observing eye came apart from my body and I floated up into the ceiling and I mm -hmm. looked down and I saw that body that I had just occupied. But what struck me, and I remember it even to this moment, was that that body was motionless and that body was vacated. It was dead. I had just had a complete out-of-body experience. And so the first part of the book is me trying to understand what just happened there. How did this digital parlor trick basically trick my brain into violating its own sense of self, mm -hmm. something as powerful as that, like a psychedelic can do, uh, and even something as essential as my coordinates in space and time were violated with a computer. And so I kind of break down what that is and how that happens, because it's the basis of medical extended reality. That's why I really started with that whole that whole story and the science behind it. It's a great hook, man. You got my attention, <laughs> you know, going through that and really that ability to put someone in place and then separate them out there. I imagine that would be amazing for pain management um, and perspective. And you're really talking about VR being like the ultimate empathy machine. But the reason why it is, is because it's the ability to change your perspective, shift your perspective and, and really kind of, you know, put that reality on top of it and put you in different, whether you're going to be a man in a woman's body or you're going to be a child or empathy, mm -hmm. or if you want to find out, I heard somebody once said that they put people in order to find someone's values, they put them into different experiences. Like you're a redwood tree and a lumberjack's cutting you down. You're a dolphin right. from the ocean and it's being polluted. Right. It's really interesting because that, that embodied presence and then that ability to shift that presence to really kind of de deconnect you from that. I thought it was absolutely brilliant um, along the way, uh, which, I guess we can segue into it because it is a topic. I can see some of them, but I have a light and my light kind of covers up oh, okay. some of these things. So thank you for calling that one out. Uh, so dealing with dementia, um, I'd love to talk about this one for you and, and we can explain about it and go back and forth in this um, and, and get your thoughts on, can virtual reality help with dementia? Yeah, so dementia, of course, um, is a very difficult, challenging condition. Uh, heartbreaking to watch people lose their sense of self. And really, yeah. in a way, going back to this earlier discussion, dementia is uh, uh, is the consequence of losing your sense of self. You know, the mechanisms of, of something like Alzheimer's are, mm -hmm. of course, different than something like schizophrenia, um, although they both do tend to involve the hippocampus to some degree. But the point is that in both cases, broadly, you're losing your sense of self. To, uh, so, so the idea then is how can virtual reality kind of restore a sense of self? Now, I would never claim that VR uh, is going to reverse something like Alzheimer's dementia. Uh, time will tell if these sorts of therapies, if implemented earlier, can actually slow the trajectory of something like Alzheimer's. But what we do know, and I talk about this in the book, is 
these really profound examples where um, where virtual reality can be used as reminiscence therapy. So one thing we do know about dementia, particularly Alzheimer's, is that although short-term memory is generally uh, lost, um, dysfunctional, uh, if you tap into the right part of the brain, people can remember um, with great detail long-term memories from way back. Mm. And so there's a technique that some therapists use called reminiscence therapy, where you can you know, give somebody a photograph from, an, uh, from decades ago and, uh, and talk about it, play some music from their childhood, and they'll remember it and they'll sing along. But what's really profound is if you use virtual reality. Mm-hmm. So there are examples where in uh, nursing homes, uh, virtual reality is used using Google Maps and sort of a three-dimensional stereoscopic reproduction of somebody's childhood home. And you can put somebody right in front of their home And they think they're there. I mean, you just feel like you're there and you can just see like if you had an MRI scan, you'd see the brain light up. But you can just see the body language. All of a sudden, people start telling stories, singing songs, very deep and detailed recollections that it was just a matter of tapping into that the right part of the brain and using the leveraging the benefits of psychological presence that you get from VR where you feel like you are there. And that's what makes it so powerful more than just looking at a photograph. So virtual reminiscence therapy is one very interesting technique uh, that Mm. can be used for people with dementia. That's interesting. So you're saying that with dementia, one of the things my grandmother had it, my mom has it going through this whole process. And you see that they have this long-term memory Right. But they don't have the short term memory. They lose a lot of nouns. Right. Person, mm-hmm. place and things along the way. Mm-hmm. And then along that pattern, you're saying that if you can you're basically digit, you're you're basically creating a bridge from the long term memory into the immediate by recreating that and then basically jump starting that pattern. Is there been anything, any studies around that with the MRI machine showing that in some sort of way that the brain is compensating or in some way? I know you can't speak to say it. It cures Alzheimer's. I'm not saying it does. That's mm-hmm. not the, the point mm-hmm. of the conversation. But we do know that the, the brain is placid and has the ability to right. compensate in different areas. So you can you can lose a chunk of your brain uh, to a degree. And it can it can compensate degree uh, to degree. So, is that has there been any MRIs or any types of studies shown by using this type of therapy that the brain is somehow uh, learning a new way to think and a new mm-hmm. way to process, very much like the phantom limb syndrome? Right. Yeah. And that's what, again why I start with the phantom limb example because it actually yeah. helps unpack what happened to me when I had that out of body experience. And you you hit the nail on the head that the pl- the plasticity of the brain is the key phenomenon that we can leverage in all of these examples. And so the whole idea there is, you know, the brain is not like some block of Play-Doh sitting in our head that never changes. It's a moving, shape-shifting part of our body, just like anything else. I mean, this conversation right now is changing my brain and your brain and the brains of anybody who's listening, uh, hopefully for the better, but it's changing, all right? It absolutely changes every single um, millisecond. And, and the incredible thing, taking a, a little bit of a tangential uh, tangent for a moment, is that every cubic centimeter of brain tissue, and we all have, you know, 1,000 to 1,300 cubic centimeters of brain tissue, just a tiny little cubic centimeter of brain tissue has more neural connections in it than there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Okay, over 100 billion connections between nerves. So, you know, 
just the untapped potential we all have is, is, is literally mind blowing. I mean, it's just beyond anything that we can conceive of. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, the brain is constantly rerouting, shifting. And so stroke is the classic example where a part of the brain is, um, you know, is ischemic, it dies. And then the brain starts to work around that, especially that that can be accelerated with virtual reality. That's been shown. There are neurorehabilitation VR programs to help accelerate that ability. Um, that's why VR works for phantom limb pain, for example. Um, and so dementia is a tougher nut to crack. I don't know offhand of any studies with functional MRIs using VR for dementia. They may mm -hmm. exist. I just have not seen them personally. I think that would be a challenging study to do, but it would be an interesting one. But I think mm. fundamentally, that's what we're trying to achieve is to accelerate sort of, you know, the, they always say, uh, you know, nerves that, you know, wire together, fire together, and trying to lay down kind of new pathways to work around yeah. some of the deficits that we're dealing with. Yeah. Wow. So two things on that. Um, one, uh, before I get to the MRI piece, uh, when you talked about the chunk of brain has more neurons in it than the stars in the Milky Way, my mind just kind of blew on that was like trying to process that. Mm -hmm. And I have a thing that I've noticed. I've seen a simulator and I don't know, this is what I'm going to call my bro science on things. And you can please fact check me on this is that the sense of awe, right? When yeah. you see, when you see, when you, when you go from the little tunnel into the Yosemite Valley and you see all those mm -hmm. ones, or you're inside your tent and you step out and you look up at Joshua tree and you see all the stars in the sky. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that the same type of thing happens on a, on a computer or a VR headset when you're mm -hmm. trying to render and you're trying to process so much that you mm -hmm. overprocess the system and you, and you basically create a sense of awe. And so I think, and I don't know if, I'm, if this is one of the thoughts is, is that awe is a sense of really over trying to render so much beauty at one moment that your brain literally goes, uh, and you're trying to actually process all that. I don't know if there's, if you had any thoughts around that, but that's something I've yeah. just experienced with myself. Yeah, so the sense of awe actually is an area of scientific inquiry. There's mm -hmm. research that is attempting to understand what that is psychologically and physiologically. And in fact, uh, in the book, I talk a little bit about this sense of awe and the reproducible ability of virtual reality to achieve a sense of awe um, under certain circumstances in certain people. Not all brains actually are equally capable, it appears, of um experiencing awe uh, that seems to be yeah that, that's uh, that is an awe um and so you know what is a sense of awe i mean psychologically it's sort of this notion that you're part of something much 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 bigger mm -hmm. um so astronauts when they're in you know orbiting the earth will often report a sense of awe they look out and it hits them that wow like that's the earth you know i'm part of something much bigger and, and that's profound and people have goosebumps and physiologic responses. And, you know, there's a really interesting scientific um, research around that. In fact, there's something called the goose cam, which is a camera that will look at goosebumps as a, as an objective outcome measure in virtual reality studies. So there's been work done at Simon Fraser university up in, uh, up in Canada using the goose cam, literally putting people in VR and circling the earth and demonstrating how quickly it can create goosebumps. It tends mm. to be more common in women than men uh, in their research and not everyone gets, gets the willies, uh, but that's kind of an outward marker of awe. 
Uh, and so there's some really interesting work in that area. Oh, that's fascinating. And I wonder, I mean, I, I don't know why it would be men versus women. Maybe men are more um, familiar with the technologies and so it has less of an impact. Maybe there's that hedonic treadmill kind of thing going on, or maybe there's something that is more of a physiological um, thing. I don't yeah. know. That's, that's fascinating. Well, I, I'm, I don't want to risk uh, overstepping my, my area of expertise, but yeah, there of course are um, biological differences between men and women. And some of that does track with empathy and uh, empathy is sort of the ability to look beyond yourself to those around you. And that uh, can be a mechanism to help open the doors to awe. Uh, if you're open to experiencing kind of the world beyond you um, more broadly than not. And so that's uh, one approach. Uh, and um, yeah, there's quite a bit of research looking at empathy and awe and, and uh, biological differences, but it's of course variable from person to person. Sure, that makes sense. I mean, as a survival mechanism, I mean, it, the, the male-female relationships and women pay attention to more of the social structures and you know, it, that makes sense to a degree. Um, I want to circle back to the MRI and scene of people have seen that. Do you know of a woman named Mary Lou Jespin? Are you familiar with that name? Uh, does not ring a bell. No. Okay. So uh, years ago, I was on Reddit at three in the morning, as sometimes I want to do, trolling through the Reddit subreddits. And I saw this title and it says, ex head of research for Oculus Reality Labs invents AR VR telepathy. Okay. And I was like, hmm, you have my interest, go on. So I went to go watch it and I went and watching this, this woman and she's literally doing the speed of light calculations in her head by doing this. And I'm like, okay, I am way too dumb to know if this is true or not. So I sent to three of my smartest friends, like AAA developers, MIT people, all that fun stuff. And they came back and said, yes, yes, it's 100% true. So essentially, she was working in the labs and she makes a lot of the, the face plates and stuff like that, for like the Quest and all that stuff. And she's since left. But she realized that the cameras are so good right now, just as is because of trying to get Pokemon you know, 2022 out and all those other ones. It's so good that you can actually, if you put it on your brain, you can actually, if you had a, an array of them, a series of cameras over it, it can operate as if a functional MRI at one 1,000th the cost, one 1,000th the price and all that mm -hmm. fun stuff. Mm -hmm. She has since left Oculus to go pursue a thing called Blue Ocean, I believe it is. And she, or Blue Water, I think is the name of her group. And uh, it's really, she created a device that can go on your head that can, what she says, operate as a functional MRI. But so what happens if you have a VR machine that can also be an MRI, that can see what you're, see what you're looking at, hearing, selling, and also mm -hmm. seeing the way your brain is responding in real time. Right. She goes, over time, you're going to be able to have, be able to think a thought, it'll be able to transcribe it, then send it to someone and process it, as well as a low-cost, universally adaptable um, MRI machine that mm -hmm. she said four years ago, she's going to work on a prototype two years, and so that's been two years since, and so now, supposedly, she's at the point where she's getting ready to kind of have this go out into the public with everything, and I know she's somewhat local to the area, so when you're talking about that, I and you're always in the future tech space, I haven't been able to get her on the podcast yet, mm -hmm. but if you if you, if you you get a hold of her, just let me know, because I think you guys would make something, something really magical together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, broadly, we're talking about brain-computer interfaces here. Mm -hmm and the ability to have a feedback loop between um, uh, neural processing of some sort uh, yeah. and the um, user interface that in this case, the VR is exposing the, the user to. 
Yeah. And so folks like Adam uh, Ghazali in uh, UCSF have been studying these kind of feed forward feedback loops in VR uh, and other forms of technology for quite some time. And, you know, we've also been doing more and more work with this, not so much with this uh, kind of portable MRI, fMRI paradigm, but just other measures of, um, of physiology. So, mm -hmm. for example, we've been using the HP Omnicept headset which is a headset by HP. It has built-in biosensors. It can measure uh, pupil diameter. It measures heart rate and heart rate variability. It measures eye tracking, and it will calculate uh, uh, an integrated metric called the cognitive load, which is kind of basically how hard is your brain working? It's not near as, uh, as granular as what you're describing uh, in your discussion here, but mm. the idea is still, even with a headset right now, we get biofeedback. And we can use that to modify in real time dynamically what people are experiencing. Plus, we can measure it on a computer as our patients are using the virtual reality to get a sense of how effective is the VR. Uh, and then we'll debrief with patients afterwards and show them the measurements so they can see firsthand how this psychological experience actually was also a physiological experience. That they did modify their nervous system, their autonomic nervous system, for example, uh, with their thoughts, with this experience. Mm. Uh, and that's very, very powerful for patients to see that because otherwise it's just kind of us saying talking, but it becomes manifest when you mm. can see how your physiology changed and how you can feed back into yourself with these brain computer interfaces. So this is a very exciting, important area of research. Well, that's fantastic. It's what you're talking about is digitizing reality. Reality is the external reality, the social reality, and our inner responses. And one of the ways is if you can scan the brain, that's one thing. But eyes are one of the souls because you can look at pupil dilations and all that jazz. I, I had Adam on the podcast. Fantastic topic. Fantastic beard. He looks like the world's most interesting man. You know, <laughs> he does. Yeah, he does. Right. And also, I mean, he talks about, you know, he had a couple of different companies. He had a gaming company. He also had to have, you know, uh, this company that, that does measurements and feedback and can really, how do you integrate these systems? And I think this is where these studios are going. It's not just a game company anymore, a VR company. It's really, it's a combination of these interdisciplinary skills coming together to really digitize a human and create an entire reality, not just the external, but the internal to be able to shift people to where they want to go. Because ultimately, if you look about people being the heroes of their own story, it's a story of human transformation human growth and it's about getting from one place you're seeking a goal but transforming who you are along the way and so have you seen any companies like this coming out that are really focused on besides atoms of these integrations of multiple different disciplines and integrating them in to transform the user hmm. well i'll think about the company question in a second but hmm. just to comment on what you're saying that yeah i mean the idea of all this it was as i think about it is not for people to live in virtual reality forever right so hmm. that we created this almost dystopian metaverse where people are living their lives entirely within digital worlds, which mm -hmm. will become increasingly um, possible as the metaverse evolves, whatever that is we're learning, uh, and as the technology improves. To me, the goal of doing this kind of work in virtual reality is in a practiced, reproducible, and safe environment. We could give people the chance to practice managing their physiology, their thoughts, their cognitions, their emotions, uh, and, their, and their body um, mm. in a way that they can practice over and over again. Um, and so that they can then go back into real reality, maybe we'll call that RR, 
uh, and have those skills at the ready and, you know, use them to live a richer, more meaningful life in real reality. So when we talk about the metaverse and all the worrisome dystopian, you know, possibilities, mm -hmm. uh, it is inevitable that the metaverse is coming. So, you know, my role as sort of a clinician, a doctor, and somebody's interested in medical extended realities, how do we kind of, uh, let's call it, um, cultivate some corner of this metaverse so mm -hmm. that it is for good and it is to support human health and well-being in the real world? Uh, how can we, uh, what does that look like? Does, is it regulated? There's lots of interesting questions, regulatory, philosophical, psychological, about what's involved in creating that part of the metaverse. And the, the companies that are thinking in that way are the ones I'm most interested in, um, mm -hmm. that are thinking about not how do we sort of addict people to VR and um, gamify it endlessly, but how do we give people hits of VR, let's call it, um, that will allow them to go back to the real world uh, mm -hmm. and not have to continually rely upon these digital metaverses to, you know, to survive and thrive. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know about any individual companies right now because they're kind of coming here and there and their flashes in the pan. Some are more to stay. I have been very impressed with Applied VR yeah. Applied because they have an FDA cleared, um, uh, you know, treatment. We've worked with Applied um, for years um, yeah. and, uh, you know, I think they've been doing it right. And there are many other companies that are doing it right as well. Yeah, had lead designer for Applied on the podcast as well. Um, and you're talking about one of the things that I find fascinating here because we're talking about they have a they have a breathing device, right? That allows you to be able to track breathing with the headset. And why is that important? Because breath is the window to being able to regulate your autonomic nervous system, right? It's really a connection to the rig the vagus nerve. And if we really look, and when you talk about people think that we're thinking machines that feel, but we're really feeling machines that think and the feeling piece of that is our vagus nerve and if you look at the entry points down the system part of it being is one you can tap into that say emdr therapy in the eyes you can have the breath work going in through the lungs using things like wim hof all the way down to say the 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 gut right and having a healthy gut and you know if you transplant the, the having good food in your system versus bad it is the second brain so it can affect you down the line mm -hmm. and those are things about affecting your internal reality so that you can actually show up and actually have an effective change in your social reality or the physical reality around you in terms of attack, not attacking, but affecting the vagus nerve going down the lines. What technologies or systems have you seen that have paired up with virtual reality that really stack to have a comprehensive effect on the way we feel? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot uh, built into that question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you mentioned the vagus nerve, which certainly is an important part of how we integrate uh, our mind and our body, no question about it, um, key parasympathetic pathway. Uh, but of course, there's much more than, than the vagus nerve, uh, just the spinal cord itself, um, you know, we have these descending pathways, so descending inhibitory pathways. So mm -hmm. for example, um, if you, you know, are in pain, um, either acutely because you twisted your ankle or, or chronically because you have, let's say, chronic lower back pain, those pain, pain signals are kind of amplifying in the spinal cord and just bombarding the brain constantly. And the brain starts to change um, how it perceives that pain, changes physically, functionally over time. But the thing I wanted to point out here is the brain doesn't just sit there haplessly getting washed over with signals. The brain can fight back. 
And so the brain does that. One of the ways it does that is not even through the vagus nerve necessarily, um, just through descending inhibitory pathways from an area called the periaqueductal gray. And it doesn't really matter right now, but it can basically send signals down that will close these uh, virtual gates. So the whole idea behind this gate control theory is we have these like kind of like gates that open and close along the, the spinal cord. And if we close those gates, then the pain signals hit the gates and kind of bounce back and don't come up. So how do we do that? Well, if you are anxious, um, your gates are wide open because you, it makes sense evolutionarily. I'm like preparing for a threat. So I need to know what's going on down there. I'm wide open and letting everything up into my brain. But if I want to chill by a palm tree or something, I don't have time for pain. I need to put my mind in a state of ease and calm. And that one of the ways we know you're in, you're in ease and calm is you're not feeling the pain in the same way because the brain is fighting back and smothering it. So, you know, it's not just the vagus. There's so many other ways. And that's not even to mention hormones like cortisol and stress hormones and the immune system and all the other ways that the body and the brain are constantly communicating. And that goes back to my earlier point. It's not the body and the brain. It's one integrated system. Uh, it's, it's just our way of thinking about it. It makes sense that there's a brain and there's a body. It's all one system. So VR just kind of plugs into that as one of many different kinds of ways to modify the way our brain is experiencing our body. And when we use haptics and we use peripherals, now we actually are modifying our body. I mean, I could use this sensor right in front of me right now, uh, which is, goes, on the, goes on the GI tract. It's a sticker and it listens to your intestines. And the sounds can actually go into a VR headset. So you can just imagine all the ways we can integrate mind and body. Well, that's interesting because, you know, things that get measured get managed, right? And so if you can take those internal responses and make it awareness, right? If you look at social emotional control, the first step of it is awareness. And we can, and, and being able to have those types of biometrics, like I've heard of, you know, you can take it, you can take a look at your breath. You can take, you can see your heart rate. You can take a look at the, and if you see it and you become aware of it, that is the first step to that's be right. able to affect that change. I have one, until I read your book, I didn't know about this GI thing that you put on your stomach to be yeah. able to see that. Does that influence like healthy dieting, healthy eating? Because I imagine just people trying to abuse it to see what kind of loud sounds can come out of the body. But like how, can you talk to me just a bit about like how it's applied? Yeah, well, this particular thing uh, is unfortunately not yet available to anyone, but I'm still mm -hmm. holding it here. It's an FDA cleared device. I happen to have invented it many years ago. It's called AppStats. And uh, this is just one example. I mean, this thing actually has a microphone in it. So if you stick it on your belly, it's like a wear of Fitbit for your stomach. So it's measuring the sounds of indigestion. And every, just like you have a heart rate or respiratory rate, this is the intestinal rate. This is the number mm -hmm. of times per minute that your bowels contract. And so it makes a sound and we can simply measure that sound. So that's just an example of one of yeah. many different measurements that we could obtain. Just like you said, you know, uh, you have to be aware of something first to sort of modify it. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's often very true because we don't, it's very hard to count your intestinal rate. You know, yeah. if you have something like diarrhea or constipation, but you don't necessarily know how quickly your intestines are moving unless you hear it or feel it. Uh, but this is something that can give you awareness of it. Or a totally different example is, um, you know, anorexia or on the other hand, obesity. And I talk mm -hmm. about that in the book. Uh, in both of those cases, one of the theories is that we lack the interceptive ability to feel inside of our body. And at the beginning of this discussion, I talked about interception, extraception. And so we lose track of what it feels like to be full. 
mm-hmm. or to be emaciated. Like your brain just becomes accustomed to that. And so there's this guy, Giuseppe Riva in Northern Italy, who's used virtual reality to try and reset the mind's map of the body by, by raising awareness about this, like you said, about this deficit. So he'll put somebody who has, let's say, anorexia into a headset and you look down and you're in a normal sized body, totally not an anorectic body, but a normal sized body. And people go, oh, my God, like that's what it's supposed to look like, like literally the awareness right there that that's what it's supposed to look like. Cause you, somebody could tell you that, but in mm-hmm. VR you see it and feel it. And he's literally shown in randomized control trials that that intervention can help with weight gain. I mean, when, when used as part of a broader intervention, but it's really quite fascinating. And it's really true about awareness being one of the first steps and VR can help with that. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and we had, again, Giuseppe on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And we were jamming with that and he was talking about, and there's one of the things they let me know about the creating physical reality you, when you have the mental route and you're thinking about it, it's very loose. But if you actually create it as a digital space, it creates it into a concrete environment. And so because we're constantly, we're, we're these prediction machines, constantly predicting yes. what's going to happen. This is going to be good. This is going to be bad. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to like this. I'm not going to like this, right? And the thing is, we're good at it, but we're just not nearly as good at it as we think we are. And mm-hmm. that's one of the biggest challenges that we have going through the process. He actually doesn't want to get into multiplayer VR because it's it's too hard. So he keeps things pretty single player. Okay. But the one thing I think is fascinating is on that same note, uh, I don't think you talked about in there, was the ability to be able to not only see your own body, but be able to see a reflection of yourself as an avatar and say, based upon what you do, there is an expedited effect. So if I eat unhealthy, I can see a dramatic effect. Yes, if I do something, it has it. Because one of the things about the reason why people like to live in a game world versus be in reality is that me- reality can be messy and unpredictable. And games have a quick response, an immediate feedback that you can see a consequence. And it's often for us, you know, if someone smokes cigarettes, they may not see that till 50 years later, mm-hmm. right? So that effect, what have you seen with people using, being able to see their own avatar and what effects have you seen to be able to shift their behavior patterns? Yeah, this is really important. And it goes back to this benefit of VR to feel different, to literally feel embodied when I see my hands or my body. So, for example, um, you know, somebody who has rheumatoid arthritis, mm-hmm. uh, but it hasn't advanced yet, uh, but it's starting to hurt their hands and they're not sure whether they want to start taking certain medications, which could have risks. Um, well, one way to help figure that out is to just watch and see what your hands might become. Uh, And this isn't to be scary or catastrophic, but like, this is what your hands could look like in 10 years without treatment. Um, and that's an example where you now have a little bit more information to work with. Um, another example that we did was for managing high blood pressure and people staying on their medications or staying on a low salt diet. So we exposed them to what could happen to your heart and your brain and your blood vessels and your kidney, if this continues um, and what's going, the damage that's going to occur. And when people experience that in VR, we actually saw amazingly a reduction in their blood pressure over the subsequent um, six to eight weeks uh, because they just got back on their medications and tried to change their diet. It was so impactful to get that sense of the future. Like you say, it's not a short-term game, it's a long-term game and VR can kind of accelerate the clock in a way that just a doctor or, or clinician saying it may not be all that convincing, but when you feel it, there's an emotional valence. And mm-hmm. if you think about what do you remember the most in life, usually 
both the good and the bad memories were tied to something strongly emotional. That's what mm -hmm. steers memories and lessons into our brains. You get married, you remember that. Somebody punches you in the face, you remember that, okay? Um, and so VR has an emotional valence and that's mm -hmm. the power of, of sort of uh, burning in strong lessons using VR if we use it appropriately and, and not inappropriately. You could see that the, the, the potential for abuse too. Absolutely, absolutely. They say, you know, uh, experience is a great teacher. It's just not always the kindest. And I think with virtual reality, we can kind of shortcut the the kindest part because you're like, oh, test run. You you don't actually have those hands. This is what's going on. Or you're talking about lowering blood pressure. In the book, when things was great, you're talking about doing a thing with uh, pastors and preachers where they're talking yeah. about a yeah. low salt diet. And right. what you did, which I think was great, uh, being a human centric designer myself, mm -hmm. is you involved this community to co-create this experience and mm -hmm. to be able to incentivize that you didn't just say, hey, I know best. I'm the doctor. Eat your medicines. This is what you have to do. Yeah. Right. Or you're going to die. Right. You co-created that together. You had the community go through it and then you shifted collectively that behavior to be able to lower that uh, salt level or the, I believe it was blood pressure, like seven points all the way right. down. Anything above four, I believe was significant. So what I like about that, you said there was a methodology, a practice, a three phase mm. approach for actually okay. designing and co-creating effective experiences for transformative change, at least in, in my words. Can you please kind of, if anybody's listening out there for that want to be able to design these types of effective modalities, can you kind of maybe summarize that to a point? Yeah, absolutely. You're right on, right on target with this. Um, too many, whether it's VR or any other kind of digital therapeutics, or really just anything in healthcare, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense that you start with the end user in mind. Okay, you start by learning from the end users, in this case, generally patients. Mm -hmm. What are their unmet needs, knowledge, attitudes, beliefs, preferences, uh, and use human-centered design principles to create an experience that is meaningful to them and that they had a hand in co-creating. And so we call that VR1. So there's VR1, VR2, and VR3. And just like the FDA has phase one, two, and three trials for pharmaceuticals, mm -hmm. uh, we have VR1, two, and three trials for uh, immersive therapeutics. And XR might be a better term than VR. But in short, VR1 is the human-centered design component. This is where we sit down with patients and find out what do they want? What are, what are they looking for? And obviously it's informed by the literature and by experts also but we have to have patients involved in storyboarding and developing the idea behind it. Uh, it. VR1 ends with some kind of a prototype program. That's then used in a VR2 study to, to evaluate if there's any early evidence of clinical benefit and also looking for safety and tolerability. It's not a randomized trial yet, but it is a clinical application and you continue iteratively improve it. VR3 is the full randomized control trial. By now you've got a pretty locked in intervention and now you have to actually demonstrate that it makes a clinical difference in somebody's lives compared to some other intervention that we might otherwise be using in everyday practice. And that's the most rigorous way to really mm -hmm. evaluate these. And that takes time, which not a lot of developers are interested in, in uh, in you know in, in taking let's say yeah no. yeah we go isn't that demo cool wouldn't that be cool that's usually the uh as, yeah. as far as as most developers want to take yeah. it along the path have you uh have you seen so um for myself personally i've been i've been working on this game for like the last 18 months and it's a vr multiplayer shooter just got released in app lab store and all that stuff and one of the things that we're looking at is not only just a fun game to play but also working on combating toxicity in games and the principle mm -hmm. is this is that uh 
gamers are the new gang members and, and they don't roam the streets anymore. They roam online, if you want to call them metaverses or video games or whatever, terrorizing people. And they're inside their own world. And inside there, you can have just as traumatic experience because inside there, there is the achievement, there's picking teams, there's shaming, there's blaming, there's, there's rampant toxicity inside these games. And at that point of being triggered is when you want to be able to bring in and have some sort of a pathway or communications that gives them a way to process or be able to communicate that in a healthy way. Have you seen anything in that areas or any recommendations you'd have um, that comes to mind for being able to um, build, create, or um, refer to something that's been able to tackle this issue? Hmm. I haven't. That's a really interesting point. And it also brings up an earlier point, which is that real uh, virtual experiences are real experiences. Okay. This whole idea that, oh, there's the virtual world and there's the real world. Yeah. But like I said before, if you're being shamed in a digital space, it mm-hmm. can feel just as bad, maybe worse, who knows, than if you're being shamed in a real space, the shame, the emotions, they're real. The physiologic effects, the emotional and, and cognitive effects are real. So it's just because it's in a virtual world doesn't mean it's not a real, genuine experience. And I think that's an important insight. As for best practices for mitigating that, I don't have enough expertise in that particular area. But I will just mention that um, Jeremy Soule is a famous composer. Um, he's kind of the John Williams of video games. Uh, mm-hmm. He created all the sound for the Skyrim series, for example, which a lot of people love. Um, And so we've worked with him because he's made some beautiful uh, compositions. And he's noticed that people love Skyrim um, in large part because of the music. And many people have come to him and say, you know what? Video games normally amp me up, but the music is so beautiful that it actually calms me down. And I play just for the music. In fact, some people have said such profound things to him that they were suicidal until they heard his music. Mm. And I'm not suggesting that music is the solution for suicidality, but that's a bigger topic. But the bigger point here is um, that there are things that could be done to try to modify emotions Mm -hmm. and something like music. It's not this is not just an audio. uh, This is not just a visual. Uh, it's an audio visual experience. So there's lots of very interesting mm-hmm. ways that I think we can do better, but I'm just mm-hmm. not an expert enough to tell you what those all are. That's fair. What that brings to mind for me is one of the things that you talked about. Um, I think in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to have uh, Nani Reeves um, uh, from Trip VR on the podcast. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. And you talked about precision me- medicine, the ability to pick the emotion, pick what you would like, and then have a custom, precise experience delivered to you, which mm-hmm. was a combination of the auditory and both the virtual inside an immersive environment that was precise to you. Right. Do you have you seen? other things for precision medicine inside the immersive space that you can kind of, you know, choose your flavor, pick your own journey and be able to get the emotion or the effect or the mindset that you want by going through an experience? Yeah, this is really, I think, where we need to move is using the right treatment for the right patient at the right time. I remember my perspective is as a clinician, as a doctor, I'm thinking about this almost like a therapeutic, like if VR is a therapy, we need a VR pharmacy. That's why I call my book VRX. Uh, where is it? It's, it's, up, it's up here behind me, VRX. Um, so how do we precisely pick the right treatment for the right patient? So you mentioned Nenea Reeves from TRIP. And one thing that you know they've done at TRIP uh, really effectively is um, to try and personalize the experience a little bit. So one way they do that is you can upload photographs that are meaningful to you from your life, let's say. 
And those images will be embedded within these fantastical, beautiful environments. And you'll just be sort of floating along and there's your dog or there's your wife or there's your you know, family member, parents. And that is alone a form of precision therapeutics, just that you see something very unique and emotionally valenced to you as an individual. Um, and you know, we talked earlier about other ways to make it very precise, like using biosensors. The ultimate might be this functional MRI brain hat that you know can tell you what you're thinking. But short of that, just having you know uh, heart rate variability and pupillometry and all these other measurements can also be used to more precisely uh, integrate. But then there's a whole other part that you know we can spend another hour talking about. And I think we'll probably wrap up soon. But yeah. it's the mechanism of action. We call it the MOA. So when I pick up a, a, a therapy for a patient, I'm trying to understand how does this pill work? What exactly is it doing? And you know that should be aligned with the pathophysiology of the patient. Uh, so here we need to think about what is the mechanism of action of this therapeutic? Is it just relaxation or is there something more specific? And so we're mm -hmm. getting much more detailed now. For example, I'm a gastroenterologist, so I treat a lot of irritable bowel syndrome, and we're creating a whole new treatment just for IBS called IBS-VR. And that's an example of a very tailored, specific intervention that's really designed for the pathophysiologies, we understand it, of irritable yeah. bowel syndrome. So I think we'll see more and more of these examples coming up. I love it. Yeah, the, the pharmacy, right? The precision medicine, being able to actually say, okay, unique problem, unique specific solution, and be able to kind of, you know, a what do you need? Okay, here's and here's a specific slice that solves this specific problem for you specifically. You know, right, mm -hmm. right technology, right, right medicine, right person, right time. Uh, bring this towards the end of the podcast here. Um, you've put a lot of time in creating this book and uh, being a evangelist in this space and really promoting and getting the word out about everything, everything that you've done in the space. What is your holy grail for all of this effort and all of this work? What is the flag in the sand that you hope to achieve um, by being able to put in all this time and effort? Yeah. Well, I think there's a, there's a, a, a philosophical answer, but that's a very pragmatic answer. So I'll just stick with the really pragmatic part. Sure. I was a philosophy major, so I spent a lot of time on that side of things. But if we can just get insurance to start paying for this, that is a form of a holy grail because at this point we have all this pent up science. There's over mm -hmm. 10,000 studies now in the literature. If you go to PubMed, type in virtual reality. Uh, and as I said at the beginning, it's not a matter of needing like another 10,000 studies. It's a matter of now figuring out how do we use it in whom and when is it appropriate? It's not gonna, it's not a panacea. You're not gonna cure cancer, we don't think, uh, though there's some questions that people have raised about that. You know, we're not gonna cure Alzheimer's at this point in time. So we have to be careful about not over-promising and under-delivering. Mm -hmm. But when used appropriately in the right people at the right time, VR can really make a difference in people's lives. I've seen it firsthand over and over again. Uh, so we need uh, insurance companies to recognize that too. And to recognize that this is probably a cost-effective intervention uh, to use these therapies. Just think about the difference in cost uh, between pharmacotherapies, um, surgeries, uh, not that VR is going to always avoid a surgery, but we're using it for chronic lower back pain. Just a, even a slight benefit of these technologies will pay for themselves. So that's my holy grail is to have um, insurance companies start paying for this so that that'll really unlock the capacity and the interest and potential of medical extended reality um, across the U.S. and beyond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The economics is the lifeblood of any industry and flowing right. through things. Mm -hmm. If that is the holy grail, 
this is my second to last question here. What is the dragon? What is the biggest thing preventing these insurance companies from paying uh, these virtual medicines? I mean, I think right now it's simply a lack of knowledge to some degree, and that's something we're trying to help with. Also, we need more FDA cleared technology. So ins insurance companies are only going to pay for, F for the most part, FDA cleared technologies. They're not going to pay for something that's on the Oculus store that's available mm -hmm. to anyone everywhere. So uh, we need more um, rigorously developed uh, programs in the way that I just described earlier with that VR1, VR2, VR3 pathway. FDA cleared or other regulatory agencies around the world clearing them. Um, and that's kind of going to allow these insurance companies to pay for these and make them more, much more available so that people don't have to, you know, pay out of pocket for a headset and, uh, and a, you know, and a, and a program like $1,500 for a program. It's just unsustainable. And the last thing I'll say on this is, you know, if I ha want to download an app on my phone, I don't need to buy a new phone. I use the phone that I've got and I download the app. It's not like I have a hundred phones sitting around me, one per, you know, per app. But that's kind of the model that is evolving right now. Some of the startup companies like, well, you can purchase our headset with it's kiosked with the software on it. So what we also need is a HIPAA compliant, a data safe, secure platform where doctors can actually prescribe these therapies into a headset. And right now, Oculus is not that solution unless uh, Meta decides to uh, play nice with HIPAA. Uh, at the moment, uh, data security is not, you know, the strength of, uh, of that platform. So we have to understand that as well as creating the infrastructure to support medical extended reality and moving forward. You want to talk about a dragon, man. FDA. Oh, yeah. Go go fight that dragon. <laughs> That's intense. Uh, yes. This has been incredible. Um, is there any last things you'd like to let people know about before you tell them how to get a hold of you or find your book? Yeah, no, I think um, we covered a lot here. It's been a comprehensive discussion. The book goes in a lot more detail. So it's VRX. Um, you can check it out, Amazon, wherever you'd like. Uh, and, you know, I think what I would say as a doctor here is what I sort of started off with is, you know, this idea of the mind and the body being separate and apart is, uh, is, a, is an old and very outdated concept. And you know, I think new um, new doctors are much more open than I've you know that have sort of within the digital divide below the digital divide. I don't want to be too prescriptive about this, but I do find that younger doctors coming out uh, out of medical school are much more open. They grew up with the internet, grew up with smartphones, see the value of digital technologies uh, in addition to traditional medical therapies, and I hope more and more we're going to start recognizing and appreciating these types of interventions, not as some pseudoscience, but as real neuroscience that can help advance uh, human well-being. And we'll see as medicine meets the metaverse if this uh, vision can come true or if it goes sideways and, and blows up on us. I certainly hope not. Excellent. Well put. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Spiegel. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate uh, jiving with you, going back and forth. This has been a, a wonderful podcast. And I appreciate your time. And thank you so much. I'll see you on the other side. Thanks for having me. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes. While you're there, you can also take the Heroes quiz to find out what kind of hero you are. Or if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast, tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.